morning, Bethel. Our scripture reading for this morning is found in the book of Matthew, chapter 12, verses 9 to 21. So if you are with us this morning, you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. You can find it. It's the black book there um, in the uh, slot there down by your knees. And you can turn to page 817. Matthew 12, verses 9 to 21, which actually quotes our passage for this morning. We're going to be looking at Isaiah 42, and so um, it's a good compliment to read how uh, the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, uses this passage um, from Isaiah that we're going to study this morning. Um, if you wouldn't mind, please stand in honor of God's Word as I, as I read. Jesus went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. And he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles or to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the nations will hope. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right. So I want you to think maybe this is something that's happened in the past. Maybe this is very real and right now for you in your life. But do you ever have periodically or maybe regularly hard thoughts about God? Here's what I mean by that. That's kind of an old expression, but it means do you... Do you think he is a hard or a harsh master? Do you ever feel that way? Even if maybe you know better, that's... Or maybe it's under the surface and you don't recognize it um, until somebody asks a question or, or something happens and, oh. Or maybe, maybe you hear passages about the mercy and the grace of God. Like, I know for me, um, this, years ago, this would be my response years ago. Exodus 34, when God is showing his glory to Moses, show me your glory. Okay, I'm going to have all my goodness pass before you. And he declares his name and he says, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And I think I kind of listened to that almost with suspicion. Well, yes, but. So, 
If you've ever had thoughts that way, if maybe sometimes that is your experience, it's probably because you've suffered and struggled. And maybe you haven't experienced the power of the gospel like you would like to. What's wrong with me? Why haven't I changed more? Why haven't I grown more? Maybe I'm not even the real thing. Maybe it's not even all true. Maybe it just doesn't work for me. Well, this message, this passage in Isaiah 42 is for you. And it's for all of us, even if you can't resonate with that at all, because this passage is balm for every soul, certainly for the hurting soul, but for every soul. It's like this inviting fireplace to warm your soul, especially if your soul is cold. Isaiah 42 is like this really sweet fireplace, spiritual fireplace. Yes? You guys like fireplaces? I mean, okay. Um, so it's that. It's encouragement for the race. It's, it's vision and motivation for the mission that we just sung about. And it's a whole lot more. So let's dive in. Um, if you're visiting or new with us, um, we've been walking through the, bu- the book of Isaiah, big Old Testament book of Isaiah, kind of section by section, um, because you don't need my opinions. We need what God says. We need his word. That's what we need most of all. We need to hear from him. So we walk through the Bible like that. Um, that's our normal practice is just studying text after text to hear what God has to say to us. So God is speaking as we study his word. That's exciting that we can hear from God this morning. So Isaiah 42, if you're not there already and you're using that pew Bible, you can find the text on page 602. We're going to look at the first 17 verses this morning. And there's an outline in the bulletin. You also see the points up here on the screen as we go along. So first point, see the servant um, in verses 1 to 9. Um, before we read those verses, a little bit of connection between the last chapter that we looked at last week and, and this chapter. Um, behold is stated three times. Okay, so the Lord's about to speak of his servant. We're going to find out who that is. And he's going to describe him and describe his mission and all of this. But there's three beholds, and we need to see the progression here. So look back at 41.24, the end of the previous chapter. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing, you idols, false gods. An abomination is he who chooses you. Look down at verse 29, another behold. Behold, they are all a delusion. Again, these idols. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. And then the very next verse, behold again. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So what we really need to see as we head into Isaiah 42, we need to see God's servant. Behold, like Open your eyes, look. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. Verses 1 to 9 are the first of four what are called servant songs in Isaiah. We'll look at um, the other ones in weeks to come, Lord willing. But as we behold the servant, what do we see? First, we see that he has a mission. 
Okay, you see it there in um, the end of verse one. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So his mission, at least here, is described as bringing forth justice to the nations. What does that mean? What's that refer to? Well, again, little reminder from last week. Last week there was a trial going on. Do you remember? God brought the idols into the courtroom, the idols of the nations, and no, we don't bow down to little you know, statues in our day and age, but we still, anything that's a substitute for God, people worship money, they bow down to the approval of other people, pleasure, all kinds of things can be our idols. So these idols are brought into the courtroom, and as Ray Ortland says, God sues the idols for false advertising. I mentioned that last week. And they're found guilty as charged, right? The Holy One of Israel, the Lord alone is God. That's the verdict in that courtroom case. So here, justice, the truth of that trial, will be brought to the nations. That the Holy One of Israel is the only God. So this justice is that message, but not merely a message voiced. It's actually that message taking root. Okay, So it's the writing of what's wrong. It's the writing of the disorder and the chaos that's come about as a result of our idolatry, worshiping and serving created things rather than the Creator. That's why everything goes wrong. That's why this world's so broken and a mess because of idolatry and our misguided worship. So the mission of this servant is to remake the world that it might be, might become this fully just society, a just order in the fullest and most perfect sense. So don't you want his kingdom to come? Okay? It's a good thing that he will, look at the language there, bring forth justice. See that language? Because on our own, we would never find it. We would never be able to pull this off ourselves. All we do is make a mess of things. Now notice also that the scope of his mission is laid out here. Look at verse 4. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands, that's like the ends of the earth, the farthest reaches, wait for his law. To them, that, that would have been an expression. That's what it would have meant. So the scope of his mission is, again, the whole earth to the nations. So how's he going to go about his mission of bringing worldwide justice? Is this servant, I mean, if, if it's that big of a job and he's going to do the whole world, is he this domineering kind of cutthroat leader? Does he just run over people to get his will done? Oh, no. Look, look at how the mission is described in verses 6 to 7. I am the Lord. I have called you, my servant, in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. In other words, he will be the way that people enter into covenant with the Lord. I give you as a covenant for the people a light. I give you as a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So this servant comes to give, not to take. 
He comes to bless, not to curse. <clears throat> he comes to serve, not to be served. Do you remember Mark 10? Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, because they're you know, all worried about who's the greatest and all this stuff, and Jesus has to say, no, no, you've got it all wrong. you got it backwards, upside down. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, of the nations, lord it over them. Isn't that the way it is in our day and age, in our country? People lord it over those in their charge, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you, not in my kingdom. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that's his mission. That's the scope of it. It's this loving, serving, blessing agenda that he has, and it's going to fill the whole earth. Now, there's more about his manner, more about how he goes about this that we need to see, and you really don't want to miss this. If there's anything you don't miss this morning, you don't want to miss the manner of this servant's mission, the way he carries it out. This is so sweet. This is the character of our God. If you want to know God, you look at Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, his servant. Look at his manner, how he goes about his mission in verses 2 to 3. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So what does that mean? What's that referring to? Well, he's not going to be self-aggrandizing. He's, he's not going to come bragging and boasting of all he can do. He won't shout others down. He's not going to cry aloud. He's not going to shout others down in order to be heard. He won't command attention with bluster. He will command attention by his love. So he's not going to come with this, he didn't come, with this aggressive, threatening, you better heal, out of my way, my way or the highway, one strike and you're out sort of leadership. That's not Jesus. He is tender and gentle and humble and attentive and gracious, a bruised reed. He will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not snuff out. So what good is a bruised reed? I mean, I don't know what they use reeds for. We don't use reeds, but a bruised one, obviously the strength of it's compromised. I mean, what are you going to do with it? It's worthless. Well, that's the point. And you know what? If you're not careful with a smoldering wick, it's, it's just so easily snuffed out. So do you see that this servant cares for seemingly worthless, weak just about to be snuffed out sort of people. That's, that's pretty good news. If you're humble, if you know how needy you are. So, I don't know, how many of you have heard of Richard Sibbs? Okay. Well, now, everybody. So, after this morning, how many of you have heard of Okay. Um, so, Richard Sibbs was a Puritan theologian in England and lived from 1577 to 1635. He was known as the sweet dropper, okay? We would never call somebody that today, but this is actually a compliment. 
So such sweetness dropped from his pen. Okay? Spurgeon, who lived a couple hundred years later in the 1800s, the famous London preacher, he wrote, he scatters pearls and diamonds with both hands. <laughs> That's great. So he wrote this book called The Bruised Reed. Okay, I know. We need to fight against this whole, like, short attention span. We don't really read. If it's longer than two paragraphs, forget it. You know, sort of dynamic. Anyway, this is not a big book, but this is a gold mine right here. The Bruised Reed by Richard Sibbs. I'm going to quote from it. I don't usually quote a ton in a message, but I'm going to give you, like, boom, 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 several quotes here in a minute, and I, I, I don't think you'll regret it. So highly recommend the whole book, but I want to read a number of quotes. And I will post these on the blog this week so you can refer to them again, so you can just listen. So first off, he says that bruising itself is God's work. So I think this is a good word from him, first off. He says, and again, do you, you think probably that anybody that lived in the 15, 1600s probably speaks in such you know, convoluted English, you can't even understand them. Oh, no. I'm telling you. Sometimes you need to get out of the superficial, banal air of your own century to really be fed and ministered to. So pick up a book that's a couple hundred years old. You'll, you'll be glad you did. So he says this, Our hearts like criminals, until they be beaten from all evasions, never cry for the mercy of the judge. Again, still a quote here, this bruising makes us set a high price upon Christ. Then the gospel becomes the gospel indeed. Then the fig leaves of morality will do us no good. We need to realize how weak and sinful and needy we are before the gospel becomes sweet and wonderful. We need to get beaten up a little bit before we realize that the fig leaves of our own self-righteousness aren't going to cover it. And it makes us more thankful, and from thankfulness more fruitful in our lives. For what makes for what makes so cold? So I'm sorry. For what makes many so cold and barren, but that bruising for sin never endeared God's grace to them. Some people just get angry and bitter, rather than soft. So they, so they actually get anesthetized rather than tenderized. What if that was God's purpose? More quotes. The heroic deeds of those great worthies, okay, he's talking about like the, the saints, the great saints in the Bible. The heroic deeds of those great worthies do not comfort the church so much as their falls and bruises do. And he gives examples beginning with David who was bruised until he came to confess his sin. How many of you have been encouraged by the fact that David wasn't like Superman in his faith, but that he fell and got bruised and God still lifted him up and used him? And he was still a man after God's own heart. That actually gives us hope because we're not perfect. Another one. It is no easy matter to bring a man from nature to grace and from grace to glory, so unyielding and intractable are our hearts. Thus the need for bruising, so that we see our need for healing. 
he goes on and gives some a helpful little picture here. Physicians, though they put their patients to much pain, will not destroy nature, but raise it up by degrees. Surgeons will lance and cut, but not dismember. So I read this week, we have these friends, um, actually a girl that was in our college ministry back in Chicago. Um, they, they're actually among some unreached peoples. I won't tell you where they are. Um, they just found out that their little daughter has leukemia. So they had to go to another country in order to get medical care. And so th- they're doing this balancing act, if you know anything about chemo and a child, and balancing act, enough to kill what needs to be killed, but not kill her, okay? I mean, you, it can seem like the cure is worse than the disease, but it's precisely because they want to kill what is killing her so that she can really live, okay? So listen to Sibs go on. He says, a mother who has a sick and self-willed child will not therefore cast it away and shall there be more mercy in the stream than in the spring, in the mother rather than in the source of the mercy and love? Shall we think there's more mercy in ourselves than in God who plants the affection of mercy in us? So how would a mother deal with a bruised reed? If a mother would do that, how much more so God? He writes, as a mother is tenderest to the most diseased and weakest child, so Christ, so does Christ most mercifully incline to the weakest. And then here it is. This one's awesome. (laughs) And he's kind of known for this quote, but I'm going to read past it. It's a sentence that hopefully sticks in your head. If we have this for a foundation truth, that there is more mercy in Christ than can, I'm sorry, than sin in us. If we have this for a foundation truth, that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us, there can be no danger in thorough dealing In other words, we don't have to fear the work of Christ, even thorough work. Oh, don't go down there. Oh, we don't have to fear. He says it's better to go bruised to heaven than sound to hell. Therefore, let us not take off ourselves too soon, nor pull off the plaster before the cure be wrought. Okay, a couple hundred years ago, okay? But keep ourselves under this work till sin be the sourest, and Christ, the sweetest of all things. And when God's hand is upon us in any way, it is good to divert our sorrow for other things to the root of it all, which is sin. So when God's hand is heavy upon us and it brings sorrow and grief, rather than kicking against him, why? We say, it's all ultimately because of sin. I need to hate sin more and trust my doctor because he's got good purposes for this pain. Let our grief run most in that channel that as sin bred grief, so grief may consume sin. So just think about how the Lord Jesus dealt with people and did his ministry. Think about how he dealt with Peter. I'll never deny you. 
even if every... And what did Peter do? Three times, like with oaths. And there was even that point where their eyes met and he goes out and weeps. And then Jesus rises from the dead. What's the first thing that Jesus said when he met Peter? I told you so. Like, you idiot. You're so, you know, blustering and pride. No, he didn't do it. He said, Peter, do you love me? Okay, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Three times. Three denials. Three questions for restoration. Because I'm going to still use you, Peter. How many of you have done some really stupid things and think, how could God use me now? Well, look at how he dealt with that bruised reed. That sm- I mean, do you think his pride wasn't crushed to the ground with that epic failure? Smoldering wick? Like, oh man, I don't want to face him. No. Like, Jesus is just, he knows just how to get that flame going again. It's his flame. He started it. Smoldering wick, he's not going to snuff it out. He's going to fan it into flame. How about doubting Thomas? I don't care that all of you said that you saw him. I'm not going to believe unless I see him, unless I put my fingers in the, you know, palms of his hands and Jesus could have showed up in that room and said, I don't know what he could have said, but he didn't say it. He said, Thomas, here, go ahead. How about that leper that came to Jesus in Luke 5 and said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Imagine Jesus could have said, if, if, do you know who you're He's so meek and humble, he said, I will. That's what I want to do. Be clean. And he touched him. Nobody touched lepers in that day. He touched him and he said, of course I will. Be clean. How about the most agonizing moment of his life apart from the cross itself and bearing the wrath of God in our place? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he warns the disciples they're just falling asleep on him and he's just like in the absolute height of agony, depth of agony and sorrow. And he had some firmness to his words, but he didn't have to say this. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What kind of savior is this? What kind of king is this? Do you believe Do you believe that he can, that he will, that he does deal with you in that same way? I went on my prayer walk last night, and I just was hit with this and thought, Lord, you've been so gentle with me. I mean, we've all gone through some hard stuff, but Ultimately, the Lord's dealt gently with us if we know who we are, apart from his grace. And we know who we are, even with his grace. We're so prone to wander. So this is the almighty God in the flesh that we're dealing with, and he didn't use his might to crush his enemies. He used his might to set his face like flint, go all the way to cross, and die for his enemies. 
same king that took up the basin and the towel and washed his disciples' feet. So, I mean, there's just so many applications to this. How about this? You worry. A worry, like worrying and anxiety is just a big no confidence vote to your Father in heaven. Right? It's, it's ugly. Worry about finances, complaining, coveting, stuff that, you know, gets born out of that, worry. And what does he do? He takes care of you. Have you ever had this happen? Just provides and t- just takes care of it. And oh. He could punish us for our unbelief and fear and anxiety and complaining. And co- Instead, he blesses, he, he provides surprisingly, and we say, ah, I don't. And by the way, Sib says this later on just to point at some of the implications, the ambassadors of so gentle a Savior should not be overbearing. I wonder, wonder if some of us may need to hear this, if you tend in that direction, it may be a little warning light on the dashboard saying, do, do I think he's a harsh taskmaster? because it seems like that's what I'm projecting. Image bearer. So if you have a false image, you're going to project it. But if you have this image of who Jesus is, you're going to be conformed to it, and you're going to actually extend it to others. Welcome those who are weak. Romans 15. So, one more here from Sibs, and then we'll put him away for now. The Spirit will only work with his own tools. And we should think what affection Christ would carry to the party in this case. (laughs) Isn't that great? Carry to the party. A couple hundred years ago, how cool is that? Um, That great physician, as he had a quick eye and a healing tongue, so had a gentle heart, or gentle hand, and a tender heart. So tender and gentle, and yet... He's not in any way weak. He will not grow weary until he accomplishes his mission in its fullness. How's he going to get this done? I mean, if he's this tender, maybe he's not so tough. That's usually what we find in people, right? The tough are usually not so tender. The tender are not so tough. And if you're tender and you, you know, have to work with this tough person, ouch, ouch. And if you're tough and you have to work with this tender person, like, oh, suck it up, you know? Like, why do we have... we just... But when you find somebody who is both tough and tender, they are so winsomely attractive and you want to be with them. Well, here is the most truly tough and truly tender human being ever to walk the earth. And he's, if you're in Christ, he's your savior. He's your king. So we've considered his tenderness. Let's answer the question regarding whether he's able to accomplish his purpose. Look at verse 4. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. Actually, same word for bruised. The bruised read, you know. He will not be bruised. He will not be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. His resolve is indefatigable. Okay, good big word. There, that's for free today. Add it to your vocabulary. See if you can use it this week. Um, He won't grow faint. He will not give up before he makes everything right. You can bet the farm on this one. 
He will not be discouraged and throw in the towel. And it's reinforced in verses 13 to 17 where we see two strange images, but they're wonderful images that speak of the Lord's commitment to accomplish his mission. So look at point two there. Justice will only come at great effort and cost. Verse 13, the Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. Imagine armies before they go out to battle, like getting charged up for the fight. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. So anytime you're going to accomplish redemption, freeing captives, it also means judgment on the enemies, just like out of Egypt, right? Rescue your people, judge the Egyptians. This God fights for his people, and he does it with great effort. He does it with all his heart. And then check out the next image, verse 14. For a long time, this is one that we might think is a little weird, but it's wonderful. God takes this on himself as an image to describe how serious he is about accomplishing the mission that he lays out here to set everything right. Verse 14, for a long time I have held my peace and have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. What is that, silent night, holy night? No, not really. That was probably a loud night, okay, in the, uh, in the stable. Childbirth is costly to the mother. It's painful and costly, but when all goes well, obviously it's worth it and brings about this beautiful result. Look at verse 15. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. Mountains were usually in reference to the powers, you know, the, the kingdoms and powerful people of the day. So this is judgment on them. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He's caring for his humble people and he's going to just level everything that opposes him. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. Why are you going to do all that? Because I'm going to lead the blind in a way that they do not know, in paths that they have not known. I'm going to bring them out of exile. I'm going to bring them out of captivity. I'm going to free them. And I'm going to guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. Remember Isaiah 40? The, the rough places will be made level. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. But... For those who refuse to get in on this redemption provided by the true God through his servant Jesus, if you reject Jesus as your Savior, you don't need him, this wonderfully tough, wonderfully tender servant, then you need to hear verse 17. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. Turn back, utterly put to shame. Okay, so again, big picture, how sweet the links that God was and is and will be willing to go through for us. Go to, for us. This unrelenting resolve is, is for us. This is the ground of our hope. It's this living hope. It's unkillable. Nothing, no one can take it away from us. So do you see why we need to see our Savior, see the servant? 
It's how we fix our eyes on Jesus so we can run the race that's set before us and not, you know, give up, throw up our hands. And one encouragement is the fact that he will not grow faint or be discouraged doesn't mean that he wasn't immune to suffering. Listen to these passages and and tie them in here. Hebrews 2.18, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Bruised reeds and smoldering wicks like us. So the fact that he suffered and was tempted like we are actually means that he is all the more able to sympathize with us, care for us when we're bruised, when we're smoldering. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus never gave up. He never gave in. Even when he collapsed in the garden and sweat like drops of blood, he didn't yield. Not my will, but yours be done. Just like at the end of Isaiah 40, you remember? Don't you know? Haven't you heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. Well, the same thing goes for the servant of the Lord. He doesn't faint or grow weary. And precisely because he didn't faint or grow weary and won't faint or grow weary until all things are made new, he brings justice, everything made right to the ends of the earth, Therefore, he is able to care for us who often faint and get weary. And he can bring us all the way home. Once again, the self-sufficiency of God is our sufficiency. So Jesus, powered by the Spirit of God, behold my servant whom I uphold. I put my spirit on him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He's nuclear-powered. He's powered by God. God is never going to grow weary or be tired. In fact, look at the parallel over in Isaiah 61. Flip over there for just a second. Isaiah 61, 1 to 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Again, this is, what does this mission look like? What's this justice look like as it gets brought to us? To bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. You see how he cares tenderly for the bruised reed and the smoldering wick, and it's all for his glory. His unswerving zeal for his name means that he will not stop short of establishing this justice throughout the whole earth. Look back at Isaiah 42 and look at verse 8. Remember that trial with the idols? Sued for false advertising, and and God was right. 
Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. In other words, my name will be hallowed. Isaiah 11, 9, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The Lord is going to set things right. This is his world. He's not going to let the false gods of this world and sin vandalize the peace and the justice forever. He's not going to let idolatry go on forever. He's passionate about his glory. And, we, and as we behold the servant of the Lord, we see that resolve. We see how he's going to get this done. He's not going to fail. He's not going to quit until he accomplishes it. It doesn't matter what you read on the news. It doesn't matter how bad things get. This, this is not a likely outcome. You can take these promises to the bank. This will happen. Look at verse 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. All of his strength and toughness is for us, used for our good. All of his tenderness is directed toward us, that we might know that he's good. He's gentle and he's tenacious. He tells it ahead of time. We know that it will happen. All of this, don't you love this God? Don't you just want to sing? <laughs> I hope so. We're going to in a minute here. But so throughout history, songs have often been the result of battles won, right? Well, this servant has come, and he's won this great redemption at great cost, at great effort, to accomplish his mission, and he's continuing to accomplish it to the ends of the earth. No wonder this new thing that's mentioned here results in a new song. Look at verses 10 to 12. Sing to the king. Verse 10, sing to the Lord a new song because of a new deliverance, this servant who brought it. His praise from the end of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands because his kingdom is extending and they are rejoicing in the Lord. So new deliverance, mighty deliverance, a new song results. So basically, this is just like the Old Testament version of Revelation 5. Do you remember that? They sang a new song, same phrase, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So this is the greatest news. All things will be made new. Because of the greatest news that Jesus came to die for people like you and me, sinners like you and me, and he can take care of bruised reeds and smoldering wicks like us without snuffing us out. All things will be made new. Perfect justice, fully, everything right with the world. All brought about by this most tender leader, the, the most tender leader you can imagine tough as nails when it comes to determination to accomplish all his good plans. So you know what I say? Jesus for president. Anybody with me? His kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Remember Isaiah 9, 6 to 7, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, the government shall be upon his shoulder. 
His kingdom will come. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government. It's going to go to the ends of the earth. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is big government you can believe in. This is what we're longing for when we pray your kingdom come. Listen to Alec Motier, a commentator. His kingdom will increase and occupy progressively all space until he rules over all. The qualities which he perfectly embodies will not suffer loss or change by maladministration. As the princely rule spreads, peace spreads. It is an empire indeed, but there's no imperialism. There is no exploitation. So, obviously, Jesus is a whole lot bigger and better than president. I know that. So when I say Jesus for president, I don't imply that I'm campaigning. He's not an elected official. We don't campaign for this king. He's not elected. He's chosen. He was chosen by God. But anyone can get in on this kingdom. And when you are his and you are in his kingdom, you are his ambassador. So when we say your kingdom come, he intends that we be a part of the answer to that prayer. This song that we sang, the unfinished task. But I'm just, what, just a bruised reed? Just a smoldering wick? Perfect. (laughs) You're his bruised reed, his smoldering wick. How tender he is with us. How strong he is to tend to us and fan our smoldering wick back into flame. Haven't you known? Haven't you heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That might get some of you to the unreached peoples. And then the rest of us, let's run and seek first his kingdom with our eyes fixed on this wonderful servant, on Jesus. He's going to take care of us. He will enable us. And let's sing all the way as we run because the battle is won and we can fight the good fight in the strength that he supplies. Let's pray. Oh God, you are so great. And for you to be so transcendently, awesomely, holy, beyond us, And to be this humble and tender and meek and lowly is mind-boggling. You are the high and holy one who inhabits eternity, but you also dwell with the lowly and contrite of spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus said. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. Please, 
would you cause us to experience the reality of those words? For your great name's sake, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.